my good brothers and my good sisters thank you so much for joining us today this is conversations from the diaspora building africa's future podcast and as usual i'm your host your sister and your friend in kiru and today i'm joined by a special guest mr marlon solomon who at this point doesn't need much of an introduction <laughs> you've heard his voice <laughs> no please no continue to introduce me i like my introduction don't just i need my introductions please thank you you've, you've heard his voice and seen his face in quite a few of our special episodes namely our circle series panel discussions. He is a civil engineer and project manager by profession, but he is passionate about building bridges of cultural understanding in the African diaspora through education, technology, and travel, which led to the founding of the Afro-American Cultural Initiative. So Marlon, thank you so much for joining us. Um, this one-on-one interview has been almost two years in the making, and I'm happy that we <laughs> finally have the opportunity to chat today. Do you have a few words to say to our listeners? Well, first, thanks for having me. And um, even though I know that we have, uh, it's been a while that we've been doing, we see each other quite a lot. So it's, it's amazing how we haven't gone yet. But no, thank you for having me. And I'm excited to be here. Thank you, Marlon. Now, I, th- I know one thing um, that I've always been interested in within the, I, I guess, the conversations that you and I have is the different experiences of um, members of the African diaspora, especially mm-hmm. in your case, as a literal African-American with a Nigerian dad and an American mom. So could you right. briefly talk about how life was like growing up in a multicultural home and how some of these experiences shaped who you are today and you know why you started your organization? Hmm. Um, well, thank, uh, that, well, okay, let me go back. Um, you know, growing up, well, growing up in a multicultural home, I think the overall thing I'd say is that I, I was never kind of at home. Um, what I mean by that is that like, if I'm in Nigeria, I am more African-American than everybody around me. So mm-hmm. I am known as the African-American. <laughs> <laughs> and also if I'm uh, in uh, America, I'm the most African out of everybody around me. So I'm the African-American. So that was one of the big uh, contexts that um, um, I got early on, um, you know, obviously, um, you know, Africa, and it's very proud. My mom, you know, she's really the, she's the real MVP because she lived in Nigeria for 40 some odd years, you know, nice. um, as an African-American, moved down there and um, raised me, you know, and really, you know, jumped into the culture. So there was always those instances of mom, you know, because after a while, you know, me growing up there would be more culturally competent than my mom because I would be getting it from a young age, right? You know, mm-hmm. so, um, you know, always having that in the back of your mind and how you're aiding your mom in understanding some of the stuff that's going on around. Although, to be honest, let me not, let me not, let me not, uh, <laughs> she knew a lot. I mean, it's not like she was just, it's just, you know, as I grew older, and maybe became a teenager and stuff. You start, you know, you know, you know, seeing more. You start noticing more, obviously. So you know that, you know, um, that's how that was. When I came to America, I, I, um, you know, and it's funny. I think everybody has these stories of how you start. You, for the first time, you realize your blackness and what it means because you understand when you start understanding the social construct that is uh, race in America and how it's socially constructed here, you know, you start understanding different things. Um, I remember the first time I was, um, uh, I was referred to, I was in college and I remember an African-American lady saying, oh, he's not black, he's African. And I just, that was the first time I had ever heard, um, you know, myself being defined, you know, in this way and um, that there was a difference. And uh, while I knew there was a difference, just to hear it explicitly said like that was, you know, like, wow. Um, And I think um, along the way, I've always, you know, uh, used my African upbringing as a source of strength over here. Mm -hmm. Um, I found it to be a very big tool 
um, and a very uh, liberating, you know, free, you know, you know, gives me a lot of, I think, um, agency in my own life because I know and I've seen people of color, black people do amazing things, especially in the community sense, meaning watching black communities thrive and have all these great legends. I mean, legends, you know, back home in Nigeria, you know, real successful, you know, just uh, honest to goodness, people that actually started the country in a way, you know, mm. the, you know, Nigeria. So, you know, coming over here with that agency, I've always had that thing. And um, my dad is an engineer, so I've always started creating things. And even I remember, you know, when I was a young man we, in, in um, Des Moines, Iowa, you know, I remember me and my friends, we started um, Africa night. Every sun, every Sunday, we would have this nice. little bar and club and we would <laughs> have, you know, African music and my auntie would be cooking jollof rice there. <laughs> and people would come and eat, you know, and it was all kinds of African people from Sudan, from um, Kenya, you know, other parts of East Africa, you know, um, Nigeria, of course, you know, West mm -hmm. Africa, you know. So a fine mix of Africans and of course some African Americans who, you know, um, you know, were invited or came down just wanted to see what was going on. And, right. you know, funny enough, that story is very beautiful because um, the, while that was my first um, time really trying to um, like, you know, create a system or something in America to um, basically allow me to practice my culture, mm -hmm. um, um, it was, you know, um, it was a beautiful thing to go there. I went there. Why did I go there? At least three, five, six, seven years ago or so, I went there to Des Moines, Iowa. And, uh, you know, funny enough, they still, there was a place and they still have, it's like a tradition there now. And they actually, they're like, there's always an African night somewhere in, um, in, uh, in Des Moines. And they have it every Sunday. And uh, he used to even come with barbecue. We used to do barbecue and stuff in the afternoon. And then in the evening, we would now, people would play soccer. Then at night, everybody would come on to the African night. And, uh, you know, and they still do that to today. So um, that's what, you know, that's the that's the drive that when I, um, like later on, you know, about five years, six years ago, I started the organization to bring my African, you know, culture and my African-American culture, you know, together. And uh, we started with the Lives in Me program, which, you know, you have been so, um, you know, just lovely the way you've been taking that thing on. Um, and um, yeah, I mean, so that's how it started. Um, and now, of course, you know, we've um, really developed into a project management firm um, and, you um, uh, we've developed an online school and resource, which you're aware of, and the Afro-American Academy. Um, the mission of the Afro-American Academy is to um, is to nurture the culture to thrive. Mm -hmm. And um, that is what we try and do. And um, in these in these communities of color, we've uh, focused in a lot on, you know, traditional redlining because, you know, a lot, a lot of um, what you know what a lot of what ails these communities of color today and all every city in america is, is basically linked to that the redlining processes you know and uh, how discriminatory and how it really harms the health and the livelihood and life in general of people of color so i think that kind of sums it up that's where we are now anyway <laughs> yeah marlon thank you because um a lot of things that you mentioned we're definitely going to talk about a little bit more later on so I think two things that I picked up from what you just, you know, your response, um, this moving back to Nigeria or moving to Nigeria at a young age and spending like a significant amount of time there. Mm -hmm. I know for many of us growing up in the diaspora, that was used as a punishment, like a scare tactic. <laughs> I don't know if that was your experience. I mean, obviously the way you described it, it doesn't sound like that, but I don't know if that was how that was for you. Did you have like a reverse culture shock when you came back to the U.S., that kind of thing? Um, no, you know, yeah, I don't even know. Well, you know, going back, I actually went back there very, very willingly. After okay. I got down on my university, I was here for a little bit, but, you know, it's like you started hearing of people doing, you know, and people going home and taking care of, you know, and, you know, assuming their roles and, you know, in society. Mm -hmm. That was always, that always, um, that always, you know, called to me. 
So after I got done with my um, university and stuff, I went back and um, that was very excited. You know, I was, you know, um, I ended up, you know, working for my you know aunties and uncles in architectural firms until I, you know, got, you know, when I went, of course, you know, you're moving up, you know, you're exposed to, you know, high level projects, high level individuals, you know, professionals and things like that. That was always very exciting. Of course, Nigeria is Nigeria. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> it has this way of gnawing at you. Um, of course, you know, the, the um, you know, all the foreign exchange and wahala and all those kind of things, you know, like they, they tend to, uh, you know, dampen it. But when I, you know, now, you know, the things I miss are the, you know, are the, are the, are the sentimental things like Suya and uh, going to the beach and, <laughs> you know, the actual enjoying of Africa, you know, enjoying of the African people, the culture, one of um one of the one of one of the matriarchs of our family she just passed and you know it's all in nigeria you really can't uh participate you know things like that you know but you know you would love to be there and represent and you know you know it's, you know be part of the thing so yeah i think that i don't think there was a culture shock going coming back yeah and no um i was very stubborn when i came back because i knew that i I, I definitely felt, you know, the lack of agency that I had in the society. I definitely felt the limitations of people's expectations of me because it was always based on their average, their average and maybe sometimes very skewed opinions of what a black man is. Hmm. I always get the, ooh, surprising, you know, the surprising looks or the surprising, um, surprising, you know, attitudes to maybe my intellectualness or my curiosity or my boldness or my self-determination. Okay. There's always that, that always, that, that, that up to today is always a, there's always something new when you go, wow. You know, so I've embraced this role of being somehow looked upon as hmm, interesting, different. <laughs> okay. You know, all nice. these articulate, all these words, meds. I don't know. So Marlon, actually, um, I recently had like a you know a guest on, and we talked about this idea of cultural revitalization amongst mm -hmm. you know the young ones uh, you know the millennials um gen z included as well um as far as in the african diaspora and i know you've mentioned that as well like you know when you were in college and you know the things that you would do like with your fellow africans on campus trying to i guess bring everyone together for you would you say that this i guess this understanding of you know your culture this or this cultural awareness did it come as a result of you know you becoming older and becoming more aware of who you who you are and who you were or did mm. like, how can you describe that? Hmm. I mean, yes, definitely becoming more aware of who I am. I mean, and who I was and personal growth and, um, a bit of arrogance, I guess. <laughs> hmm. Interesting. Um, what do you mean? I mean, it's just, you know, there's so many, um, you see when you're in the middle, of two cultures, you look at everybody, like I said, on each side, everybody has their own social constructs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they're not, it's like they're expecting you to choose one or the other. And that always tends to be the battle. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the arrogance comes from thinking that you can actually forge a, 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 a middle ground without necessarily choosing one over the other and you know of course like standing in the middle of a or standing on top of a wall right you're trying to like you're on a tightrope mm -hmm. right you're you know you're balancing back and forth and most people will fall if i would take credit for anything it's been trying to stay true to that line right i have tried that that has been a challenge okay okay so Marlon, as someone who is, you know, passionate about education, particularly for our young mm -hmm. people, why was it important for you to create the Afro-American Academy? And what are mm -hmm. some of the things that you hope, hope to accomplish with 
um, the academy? Mm. The academy. Um, I well, I've always I've always loved being an educator. I've always been fascinated with knowledge, and I've always um, tried to take a very scientific, unbiased as much as I can be. I mean. I'm a human being. Undoubtedly, I'll be unbiased. I'll be biased towards some things. I'm very biased towards black people. If that's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm very biased. But um, you know, the academy, um, started like I said with the lives in me challenge. You know, where I would give away the DNA test to um, a DNA test to an African-American so they can learn about their African tri uh, ethnicity and um, their African modern day country where they come from. And then I started realizing that there needed to be some sort of systemic, you know, easy pathway to at least learn some of these cultural um, similarities and some of the things you'll have to know. So even part of our class, we have a class that, you know, you can take, learn some very general things about African culture, you know, respecting your elders, maybe the issue of, you know, how important naming is to us, you know, some general concepts, nothing too deep, but, and even going, even how to get to Africa and what the things you need in terms of visa, you know, you know, uh, you know, things like that. Anyway, that's how it started. So I noticed it was a curriculum and from there, um, the, the academy, you know, started taking shape, started building more curriculum around, you know, things that I identified in the community that were extremely needed. The cultural competency, um, you know, under, letting people be able to understand, because you see African-Americans, when you start being, when you put yourself in an African-American point of view, of being, like you says, like I, like I always say, you know, we're we've been second-class citizens. At least officially, it stopped in 1965, right? And mm. that um, we there's still the legacy up to to now, and we don't know that, or we don't look at it in that perspective. So I started realizing that some of the some of the things that the academy would be responsible for would be to write those, like who's, like, why would, who, okay, I guess the question is who would write, who would write a curriculum about connecting African culture to African-American culture? It has to be somebody of African, right, descent. Mm -hmm. And who is writing it? And is there anybody writing it? No. So we, I started realizing that this whole genre of knowledge out there, that because of the um, the pervasive powers of white supremacy, have been erased from the history books. Also, not people have to remember, uh, you cannot expect um, second-class citizenry to be up to date with all the latest. Um, information of what's going on in civil rights and law and a, a population that has been denied education and a population, you know, you get what I'm saying? Like so much that you, oh, the, I don't know, why can't you communicate with people from India or different countries, you know, like, you know, because you don't have that cultural competency. You've been, yeah. you know, you know, there's so many different things. So I started realizing this whole genre of studies that need to be done. And um, that's also a common misperception is what is the purpose of a university? And the purpose of university, everybody, if you ask, they say, well, oh no, I mean, I go there, I get my degrees, I go and learn stuff, I go and do experiments. And yes, those are, um, re those are definitely uh, uh, functions of a university, but they're not the primary function. Um, universities are, um, Universities are um, institutions that are designed to research issues and problems in our community, in our society. 
these institutions get money and all kinds of resources to do the research, to use scientific methods to ensure that like the institutional knowledge, the collective knowledge of our community is stored, documented, you know, used properly, yada, yada, yada. And when you and the university solve these problems, and then the people who help them solve the problems, like the ones that come up with the solutions, are called doctorates. They write papers and theses and this and that. Then when they when that like basically like becomes you know law, when all these theories become law, then guess what happens? Then you go to university and you get a bachelor in it, in that curriculum. And then after that, and then and then you can even get a master's. And all those things are just showing competence that you have the competence in certain different things to solve in our community so i so that is what i want the african-american academy to achieve is to be um a problem a project a restorative project management firm i mean um i'm trained a trainer of restorative project managers that's what i want us to be okay um i woke up because in our communities all these red lines communities there are a lot of things that need to be done these things need to be done on time, um, on, you know, within budget, you know, and to just correct specifications. These things need to be restorative. They need to be community building. They need to be, they need to repair harm. They need to be able to promote inclusivity in order to repair some of, you know, and make these communities whole again. There needs to be understanding of history. There needs to be understanding of uh, what it like, you know, knowledge that is even for our health, like cultural nutrition. Mm. People don't understand lack of, Lack of all these things means lack of deterioration of culture. Lack of deterioration of culture means you don't even have, uh, we, my, my brothers and sisters may not even have the recipes to start a restaurant and feed and, and make money from feeding themselves. There's so much I could go on and on, but if you said, so that's what we would, that's what the Afro-American Academy is there to, to train project managers. We're specifically guided towards project management. So mathematics, Calcul, you know, pre-calc, um, mm -hmm. project management, um, as well as restorative practices. And then we go into a lot of stuff, you know, cultural nutrition, things like that, but financial literacy. But the idea is that we are trying to nurture the culture to thrive. That is our motto. Um, and that's what we're, um, that's what we're in the business for. So I know I'm very passionate, so I'll go on and on. So let me. <laughs> <laughs> no, I love that. I mean, it's, it's very much needed, especially in the world that we're living in today um and actually I, kn I know that you're in the boston area so some of our listeners might not be very familiar with some of the challenges mm. in that area so could you just kind of like speak on that oh um, well i mean the challenge well you see one thing about the a lot of the cities in the north in the northeast is that they're they are um extremely culturally diverse so there's like, when you come here, even there are always stories of African-Americans when they get into Boston and go, oh my God, like, why is everybody asking me if I'm Jamaican or if I'm Cape Verdean or if I, <laughs> because, you know, they come from primarily African-American communities. So they just never been in such a culturally diverse where your skin color wasn't the only thing that we wanted, you know, that wasn't your only um, identifier. Right. Right. Um, and um, those are some of the challenges that we face, that extreme cultural diversity. And let me be very clear now that the African-American Academy is not just for African-Americans. That this, Afri this that, that yes, the whole story is for African-Americans and we do have an African-American first policy book, um, but the African-American, the story, there's a lot of research to be done in anything in relation to, to the plight of the African-American community. For instance, my African brothers and sisters, especially the older ones, um, are completely very ignorant to the plight of the African-Americans. And you'll find them um, using derogatory tropes um, against African-Americans. So we do have education to do on that um, regard as well. Also, there are things that African-Americans can offer us um, that would help us a lot in our communities in Africa. So I want you to know that is, while I do know, I do recognize that yes, the overwhelming cultural flow will come from Africans to African Americans just by virtue of the issues, right. but it's not completely one way. And I don't think that, I think that, um, in fact, the story, I always say the story is never, it hasn't, it ha is yet to be told. So, mm -hmm. um, 
one thing africans over here and they have to realize that everything that they're enjoying in africa will not be they will they will not be able to even taste it without the sacrifice that african americans um have made on our behalf for us right. to be here right. so um, um i always try to remind africans before they start feeling that they are somehow advanced that they should really understand and do the research don't just you know take my word for it um so i actually do find we get a lot of interest from mm -hmm. like you said young africans um afro-americans actually yeah. afro-americans are descendants of african immigrants so apparently the idea behind an afro-american is that you have a perfect culture you've been raised in an african household in an american free environment and you've been able to thrive with all the resources you know you know you know that are over here right so that's what the afro-american is so we've been getting a we get a lot of interest from those who like they're maybe one removed from the african culture and they really want so we do think that there's a lot of market there for african um parents here that want their kids to still to be knowing what's going on in african american why shouldn't they right won't they be leaders of tomorrow don't they have to be leaders of people of color doesn't matter you know yeah. so let them know let them learn about what's going on in the community let them also understand how they can even use their cultural foundations to help the community why yeah. not we're all in it together you know and um also it'll be also a way of helping the african you know one thing we always decry is that ah, these children are learning all this nonsense so by here you know that kind of <laughs> <laughs> and and we and you know we try to you know like i said respect your elders you know the importance of education a lot of things that we we kind of take for granted in our culture i think the way we teach it is very empowering to hear your culture said in a positive way i think that's something that we africans especially nigerians can be more proud of the way our culture is even said and say it in a more positive way right and i think that this is one of the great ways things that we do at the academy that and these are the nice. issues we face in boston yeah okay Okay. Yeah, Marlon, I mean, from when you were talking, I kind of thought about our um, our event that we did for, you know, to celebrate Kwanzaa on, you know, the great mm. reconciliation, like right. this, you know, age long issue with um, African Americans mm. and Africans in the diaspora, you know, those continental right. Africans rather. Um, so w from our discussion that we had in that, you know, with that conversation, what are some things that maybe stood out to you the most as far as ways that we can move forward and how we can work together as communities? I mean, right now, I mean, like, I, I, I mean, I, I truly believe that that's why we have, we need to research it. Like, I mean, I, there's no, I mean, I know this is going to kind of be like, we're going back to African-American Academy, but that's why we exist. Like, I don't know exactly all, you know, I'm not, you know, while I can build the engine to maybe do the research, I'm not trying to sit here and say that I know all the solutions. But I do have an idea based on what, you know, because we spend so much, so many hours, you know, how many hours we spent talking about this kind of thing, <laughs> you know, but um, definitely, um, I mean, there needs to be some mutual understanding. So there needs to be some mutual shared facts. I think that's a good mm -hmm. place to start always is to really look at these facts. And this goes back to what I'm trying to say about the perspectives that I'm really, I'm really big this year. All this year, I'm going to be really um, spending a lot of time because um, our history, you know, we have a history department here at the academy and the history department, we want to start getting some, um, you know, putting together some material and it's around perspectives, you know, like I said, people look at, oh, well, we, oh, the, the voting right, the voting right was what, August 6, 1965, fantastic. Now, one people don't realize is that Everybody says the voting rights, people got voting rights. I mean, no, Say, let's say it in the proper way. Women, black women have been citizens, full citizens, at least technically, full citizens of the United States for since 1965. That's it, what, 50, how, how many years is that? Going on, uh, what? 57? 50 years, 60 years. Okay. Going on 60 years. Yeah, that's it, that's it. Oh. You, you as a black woman in this country could not vote. Simple. Even my mom is older than that. She won't appreciate me telling everybody that. But, but you know that's you know these are the these are the you know these this is the context that we actually live in. But somehow, 
and I do, and it is white supremacy. It does have to do with all this, like banning of books and limiting of information. Mm. It is denying the, the 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 community the knowledge and experience that it has gone through. So it is it is destined to happen again, because you are not we are not dealing with it. So, I, I mean, that is actually I believe the battle that I mean at least. I'm in. I'm actively enlisted in. It's the battle for history. I have my history. My history is a proud history. Mm -hmm. It's yes. It's yes. It's it, it. Yes, it has slave blood. It does. That's but that's part of it. Yeah. So that history that you don't want to bury. Maybe you don't want to bury. Maybe you want to bury. Um, the history of some man that got lynched in your town, so you don't you wiped it out of the history books. Mm -hmm. Guess what? That's my history too. Right. I get. I he deserves a he deserves a he deserves a fitting funeral mm -hmm. for the tragic way that he was lynched. Yes. Is that is that? I mean, for last I heard, even under the law, there's no statute of limitations for murder and um what is he i mean does he not deserve a proper funeral did he deserve to get burned and torched in front of the whole town with children watching did he did he did he deserve that no was that is that the last moments so if i want to now talk of that history so that i can feel better that i gave him that last dignity i, I should keep quiet because your comfortabilities hmm. no that's not fair right at some point we've got to move forward i'm not trying to shame or blame anybody mm -hmm. but that is how that is my history keeping quiet for your comfortability is is also limiting my full expression that's powerful and um and i don't think that i i uh i don't think we deserve that so these are the things that we'll be fighting for. These are the shared histories. And that's, you can imagine if African, if Africans came from Africa and saw some of these kind of history, like open for them to like understand. Yeah. They would understand and they would probably be more in solidarity with their African-American brothers and sisters, wouldn't they? Yeah, I agree with that. Totally. You know, but because the history is not there. So you just look at them and this is the truth. We look at them and say, what is your problem? Why are you not performing? Mm -hmm. You've been here since. Because we don't know the history. We just see them at, at now. So if we if we make an active effort to make sure that our um, African-American um, um, brothers understand that we know and we, we, we really do the history, I'm sure we'll be around, but we've got to do the work because nobody's going to teach us. Who's going to teach us? Are we waiting for white people? to come and teach Africans about African-Americans that we're waiting for. Yeah, it definitely won't happen <laughs> in the way that needs yeah. to happen. Right. And that's what I mean by these lanes. And I encourage everybody to try and find these lanes. Look at these perspectives because those are opportunities. I have an opportunity to create an online university, an online HBCU, mm -hmm. um, because nobody's taking this lane. Not because it doesn't, it doesn't, isn't needed. It's because nobody has thought that, oh, yes, we do need to connect it. And the white, if so, if everything we do is based on what white people have given us to work with, then it means that whatever they don't think of, we do not exist. We do not practice. Mm. And there's some things, it's not even their fault. Not, this is not about shame or blame. Why people can't think of, I mean, even I, can I think of what's going on in China? No. <laughs> I don't know what's going on in China. I don't, I can't know. If I lived there for generations, I still won't know. Right. So how would I expect another pe people of any race, of any creed, to understand me more than I understand myself? Yeah. So I find, I think that, you know, especially Africans that come over here with the education, with the cultural background. <laughs> stop the... Um, you know, stop the, uh, you know, you know, the, 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 the holier than thou. Well, well, Marla, I know, as you mentioned, uh, there are so many courses that you offer, such as 
you know, African-American cultural competency, financial literacy and entrepreneurship. And the one that I find extremely like unique is the cultural nutrition, health and wellness. Mm. And um, I actually recently watched some clips from uh, the High on the Hog uh, docu-series on Netflix. And I was surprised yes, to see- that's a very good one. Right. I was surprised to see a good num how a good number of um, some food traditions from Africa were preserved among right. the African diaspora in the Americas. So could you right. speak more about that? And I know you touched on it a little bit earlier, but why is that no, important? No, no, no. I, <laughs> this is one of my favorite things, because you know food. Oh, yeah. I like foods. So, no. This is actually one of the most, um, if not the most important, this is the most important um, class we actually teach, is the cultural nutrition. Um, you say, okay, well, you, you don't really talk about it much. Well, I guess so. Maybe I should talk about it more. Um, we've done the most significant research on cultural nutrition here in Boston. We've been, we've, um, in, we've been able to implement a cultural nutrition program at a Boston prep charter school here in Hyde Park, Massachusetts. Um, this, in fact, we got awarded from the city of Boston because of this work. So the cultural nutrition is extremely important because of course, no health, then there's no community. <laughs> So all the restorative project management, you want to do all the big things you're talking about, red line, yeah, yeah, yeah. If everybody is, can't, is, is sick and can't eat, then there's nothing, right? Mm. So the uh, cultural nutrition is our, is our um, recognition that our natural cuisine from, the, from Africa is built, is designed by thousands of years of trial and error and I guess Darwinism, survival of the fittest, where I'm sure the people who were eating junk food back in the day, they are not around to speak of it now. <laughs> it is the people that are, were eating the leaves that were around, the spinach, the, uh, you know, and making the soups, you know, the obono, the okra soup, uh -huh, the eregusi, uh -huh. Now we're talking my language, you know, and, and these, um, foods are natural diets. One thing I've always found very fascinating is even the idea of thinking of like, what is a good meal and what is a healthy meal is something very foreign to Africans because it's already done for us, right? You have a meal, it's already got veggies, fish, you know, <laughs> pepper, onions, all sorts of vitamins and mm -hmm. nutrients that you need right there and there. Doesn't mean you should go and overdo it. So, you know, right. Nigerians don't think I'm saying you gotta keep the whole pot of meat. <laughs> Nobody said that. But the whole point is that these foods are, are, we have already naturally gone through the process of having healthy, um, you know, organic, um, healthy foods in our diet. And it's naturally done, right? Mm -hmm. So, when um, what I found, especially with culture, is that you have to have your land. Land to be free, land to just practice who you are. And um, the, I, when, you know, because of slavery, um, certain communities like Jamaica, Haiti, all, well, generally anything that's not United States of America has been able to preserve more African artifacts in their food. Like in Brazil, they have even, they have acarajé which and if any Nigerian would know yeah. is a is a derivative of akara. Mm -hmm. They have this same food called bolitos in Cuba. They have something called akra in Haiti. The same akara bean meal, you know, grind the beans mm -hmm. and fry it in different ways. Or the one in Brazil they've added is like akara 2.0. Wow. It has shrimp, it has vatapa, it has a whole bunch of different stuff. So it's on a different level from what we eat in Nigeria, but still the idea and concepts are the same. They have it in African-American culture. It's also called, it's called the black IP fritter. So that's something that's also been able to transfer, right? But all these things form not just like of our nutrition and our diet, they also form the basis of an economic system because there's a cultural right that all human beings have to be able to feed themselves and make money from eating, you know, feeding yourself. One of the best things about owning a restaurant is that, ah, at least if nobody comes to buy our food today, we will, at least we will not be hungry. I think. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and 
while it sounds funny, it is actually a cultural right. So if your food, if other people are constantly making your food for you, your, that means that the basic foundation of your financial security is no longer existing because you are supposed to be buying that food from somebody in your community who's now going to be, you know, in your ecosystem and somehow the money comes back around to you through taxes, healthier school, everything, because everybody is in the community is doing the same, moving in the same direction. Right. African-Americans, because of the slavery and this particular systemic extra People don't understand. American slavery is different from all other slaveries, the most vicious type ever existed in mankind. All right? We won't go into that right now, but it is. And the result has been an extreme removal of cultural artifacts. I don't think, I think the African Americans are the only people in the whole world that has this level of cultural removal. I don't think there's any cultural group of, even the Native Americans that, of course, were depleted and you know, of course, they had their own massacre and, I mean, their own holocaust that was put upon them, right? Yeah, and, you, yeah. know, you know, but they are on their own land. So no matter what, they still have their stories. You know what I'm saying, you know? Mm-hmm. It's not, um, of course, I mean, nobody's saying it's, it's, it's like that, that, that they're doing great. No, that's not what we're saying. We're saying that, um, you know, and that's one, you know, and we're saying that, we're saying that their culture is diminished. And like I said, going back to what I said, sorry if I go off, but that's where that goes back to what I keep on talking about. The, the white supremacy eats culture for breakfast, eats Judaism for breakfast, eats the Native American culture for breakfast. Even in Nigeria, our, our ancestors were not allowed to, um, not allowed to speak their, their native languages in the British because they had to speak English. And this happened to African-Americans and that happened to removal of their food. So their economic um, viability, I don't know if you know, how many African-American restaurants do you know? Uh, to be honest, not many. Right. But if I told you Jamaican, a Haitian, or, you know, you, oh, yeah, 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 there's a place down Chinese, mm-hmm. right? You'll find those. So that that's all the millions of dollars in food that is going out the window. So our cultural nutrition is very, very solid on that. Mm-hmm. Teaching how to cook, teaching uh, home economics, um, just that idea of that you have to be able to cook and because you can give people food, you can give people like veggies and you know healthy, you know uh, rice and all, but they don't know what to do with it. Right. So they can't do nothing with it, and we've identified that. And if and if people can't cook and don't know how to make these meals, and and it, and you know, and that's even not, I don't know even know how that's going to help because some of our own some of our own food um, is based on religious and you know traditional, you know, like all soup. That's your own people all soup. That is for big men, you know, <laughs> you know, you know, or royalty. That you know, there's some kind of you know, but that's what they call it soul food, mm-hmm. but. A lot of the recipes are not there. The diversity is not there because, you know, it's not derived from a culture to thrive. Like most of our foods is derived from a culture to survive, right? Um, and so it is not as robust, uh, uh, you know, and even if you want to say African-American food, what that would that be? I mean, wouldn't it be KFC and Popeyes? You know, so even oh they're God. selling the food back to us. If you want to say that's traditional, I'm not saying mm. that is. I'm just saying that if you want to use that as the barometer of what African-American food is supposed to be. Yeah, like right? the Southern traditions. Right, the Southern traditional. For my mother's from the South, so right. cornbread, all that stuff, it'll be, you're going to find it in these places, right? So, Yeah, yeah Marlon, we're, um, well, I do have two quick questions. Well, sort of quick questions before we kind of close out for tonight. Um, mm-hmm. As you touched on earlier, uh, the Lives in Me um, is one of your signature events that kind of pretty much started, you know, everything that you're doing with the whole African ancestry DNA testing, which I think is extremely important for those in the diaspora who are looking to, mm-hmm. you know, connect with the continent in a deeper way. So could you uh, pinpoint maybe one of the, I guess, winners of the, you know, of the African ancestry testing test and maybe mm-hmm. the, tell me about one of their stories that maybe stood, stood out to you the most? 
Oh my, you know what? Even I have to call one today, Justina. She was the first one. So I'll definitely talk with about Justina the first. I'm gonna call after I get up doing this. Justina, um, basically, she did it all by herself. She was organic. She already got the test. I didn't get the test for her. I was just there and helped her connect afterwards. And um, one of her beautiful stories, she's such a beautiful person. I mean, honestly, um, just a wonderful individual. She even has a boyfriend now that is, I believe he's African, Cameroonian, I'm not, not sure. And her story is just beautiful because she searched for it on her own. And when she found and got that she was from Bamileke, people of Cameroon, um, she was able to connect with real Bamileke tribe, um, you know, people from the Bamileke Cameroonian tribe here in Boston. And um, the personal growth that she, 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 you know, went, she grew up in a, from a, you know, she was definitely a PWI person. And, um, you know, um, predominantly white institution person. And I think that, um, she can, I mean, the growth, it's, it's not easy because even people on her side would tell her that, oh, what are you doing? It doesn't matter where you're from. You know, like, you know, we ain't from Africa. We're African, you know, they don't even like us. You know, all these, yeah. it's like, you'll be surprised what comes out once you start digging and she stayed hmm. strong, you know, so always justina michelle is another good one i just say briefly she just is just she growing she's moving to atlanta she's always just she's so spiritual she's i think she's gonna be something like extra special in the african-american community because the way she's going who knows you I know just that. just like the energy of africa and her like it's unlocked a chakra so to speak and mm. she's just moving at you know, like awareness. And even before I would say she was a little bit lost, but you know, you know, uninformed, let me put it like that. And she has done all the hard work. She's I done all the it. hard work and the research and she's now, I mean, it's amazing. So those are some of the success stories we have from that program. I love it. I'm looking forward to our next, you know, the new right, like right. story. In March, in March. Oh right? yeah. Yeah. Well, Marlon, uh, before we wrap up this conversation, I know we have some events coming up for Black History Month, such as, you know, as you hinted on a little bit earlier, the discussion on the experiences of Black students and, you know, PWIs, predominantly yes. white institutions. Could you provide more info on that for our listeners and how they can get connected to that conversation and as well to the work in general that you're doing with your organization? No, thank you. Um, well, um, I'd say the best, you know, if you really want to, you know, um, get involved, you know, with, um, just, you know, the main thing I say is go to our YouTube channel. Um, and also, you know, we've been, we've been partnering with uh, building, um, Africa's future podcast. And, um, so either one of our YouTube, uh, channels, um, those are the best places because if you subscribe, anytime we do a live event, you'll be in tune. We do a lot of events and um, a lot of um, educational events for our community. So that'll be, you know, um, and that's the one that we're doing on the 26th of December for Black History Month. We have three of the smartest young black women, teenage Marlon, quick, ladies. Quick, these... quick connection, Marlon, uh, quick correction, Marlon. February 26th, he meant, not December. <laughs> oh, yes. Sorry. February 26th. Thank you for catching that. And, um, yeah, so February 26th, we'll be doing um, the... Um, you know, I thought about that because that's when we did our emoji. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sorry. So, yes, February 26th, um, uh, we'll be having at 7 p.m., we'll be having a live stream of um, Black Faces in White Spaces, just a discussion, a restorative discussion on, um, on um, Black students in predominantly white institutions. You know, um, we're going to see, we're going to ask some questions, you know, how far along are we? You know, these are the, um, you know, and like I said, I like to put things in perspective. This, this happened, like I said, about what, 50, 60 years ago. And where are we now? It's only 60 years since they broke these color lines, right? Okay, no more than that, but about, mm. I can't remember, I can't do it. But about 60, 70 years or something like that. Not that, not up to 100, I know that. And... These are the descendants. These are, these are these are the people who are still walking in the legacy of Ruby Bridges, and you know the Little Rock Nine, 
and it goes on and on. Um, and we felt that this Black History Month, we would shine a light on that in that way. Now, we're not just talking about the fact as if, oh, we've integrated, there's nothing going on anymore. No. Yeah. These youth are in private schools, yes, they're, but they wear, they have to wear their blackness all the time and they actually need, they're actively seeking out, seeking out institutions like Afro-American Academy because they want that agency. They need the backup. They need the history to feel, to carry the weight. I mean, I have two, I have like, I have three of these, like I said, wonderful um, young uh, black ladies and um, they go to, um, you know, PWIs, private institutions, and they have to wear their blackness because they're the only few black people in the school, you see? So they're all, at young age, they have to always, everything they do, they have to represent. They're the black girls, right? Whether they're from Nigeria, whether they're from Latin America, whether they're African American, wherever they're from, it's irrelevant. Mm. They're just black. They don't even, cannot even make the decision, you know, it doesn't matter, you know, yeah. their African heritage and things like that. So these kids need a lot of support. And uh, I'm glad to be there. These kids are going to do a great job. I can't wait. Everybody should come out and uh, support. Like I said, it'll be live stream. And you'll be able to interact because we'll be playing, you know, we'll be showing some of your comments and answering some of your questions live as we're doing the live stream. So um, yeah. subscribe to Afro-American TV and Building, Back, uh, Building Africa's Future. And uh, yeah, let's do it. <laughs> Thank you so much, Merlin. I really appreciate uh, this time that we've spent. It's always, you know, a joy to talk to you and learn from you. So um, I really appreciate all that Thank you've you said. And, and I'm looking forward to our upcoming um, discussion. As he mentioned, you all can subscribe to our YouTube channels. You can follow us on our Instagram pages at right. Building Africa's Future and at AfriAmerican1, A-F-R-I-M-E-R-I-C-A-N-O-N-E. Yes, um, AfriAmerican1. <laughs> yes. Thank and, you. Um, that was awesome. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you all so much. This is Conversations from the Diaspora, Building Africa's Future Podcast. Take care.